0: Production. Welcome to Real Crime Australian Detectives. I'm Adam Shand. This is where men and women tell their parts in the iconic crime stories of our times. My guest today, Inspector Corey Allen, is a very senior and well-respected officer in the Queensland Police Service. I first met Corey when he was working on transforming police relationships with vulnerable and homeless people in Brisbane City and Fortitude Valley. He's now the Manager of Operational Training for Queensland Police in Weapons, Skills and Decision-Making Development. But that's not why I wanted to talk to him today. I recently lost my mother and posted my eulogy on Facebook. Corey had also lost his mum the same week, but his family's experience was a very different one. He read my post, which prompted him to post a series of reflections about his mother's life, which were honest and extremely harrowing. This gave me an insight into Corey's strengths as a police officer and as a human being, and also some clues as to why Corey joined the cops back in 1986. Empathy is one of the greatest human qualities, and Corey is blessed to have more of it than most. welcome to Australian Detectives, Corey Allen. Oh, thanks, Adam. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for your time. Yeah. First, condolences for your mother's loss. Thank you. And, uh, you know, as I say, I, I wrote my eulogy and it was, it was all about her connection to family and good memories, but yours were very different. And what struck me was the very first
1: paragraph you put in on Twitter. And what was that? Well, she, um, she didn't have a very good life and... She was disconnected and and a loner and the things that happened to her shaped her life. She didn't want a funeral. She didn't want any goodbye. She just wanted to be cremated and spread in the ocean as if, you know, as if passing might be a relief for her. And in the end, probably the last conversation I had with her, you know, I felt like that as well, that, you know, when she did pass and she was 84, that maybe that would be a bit of a relief for her. And how
0: was it for you, knowing the past and you'd shared these experiences? What was her
1: passing like for you? Well, I was very grateful I got to sit with her at Christmas and she was starting to show the early signs of dementia, but I think that actually helped a little bit because she forgot some of the worst things and she was more open to discussing things and... While I had to nudge her back onto track a few times because she would get stuck in this loop of reliving some of the horrible things that happened to her, I managed to make a bit of peace with her and had probably the nicest conversation we'd had in many years, courtesy of her failing memory. Had your relationship been difficult with her? Oh, yeah, very. Right from a young age, like my, real, my mother had difficult relationships with everybody. Uh, you know, she told me some things that happened to her when she was young which started to make sense to me as to why she was the person she was. And I obviously was there as a kid when, you know, the violence and the alcohol and the anger and the, uh, the things that happened in our house took place. And I could understand some of that more as I got older, less as I was young. But those things shaped the way she related to people and you know, talking to her, the impact on me was more than I thought it would be because I, you know, I'm a police officer, you know, we're knee deep in domestic violence and other people's homes and other people's tragedy day to day. Uh, I really thought I understood it as well as I could, but it wasn't until I was trying to make sense of her life and why she lived a life like this that the penny dropped. Because you posted a picture of her, she was beautiful. Um, Lovely
0: looking woman. Great. And great. And one of those typical shots from earlier decades in Australia,
1: smiling, yeah. confident, optimistic. What happened to your mother? Well, she was one of about 11 children. Um, her dad was a taxi driver and apparently had another family on the other side of town they didn't know about. So he ended up with quite a lot of children. Hmm. And, you know, they were poor and she didn't have a very good upbringing. So it's not my place to talk about the things that happened to her, but no doubt there were some life-changing things that she shared with me growing up that affected the way she related to men, affected the way she related to family, affected her level of trust, affected the way she survived. She was a very frugal person who, even though my family was quite well off, like we didn't want for anything, we all wore secondhand clothes and We never went to the dentist unless it was the free dentist and my mother didn't drive a car because that was wasteful and she was, you could tell now looking back that all that probably came from the fact that she was in survival mode for most of her life. You know, she stashed money around the house and she bought everything at op shops and she, you know, despised doing anything for herself. And uh, I came to understand that more as I got older, that as a byproduct of her trauma and shaped her responses to people and life in general. And you reflected in your post about the fact that she chose your father as a result of the trauma. Who was your father? Well, he came from a very good family. They were like a a farming family. We had a farm at Greenslopes, as anyone knows, Brisbane. It's just about in the middle of town, that 180 acres of Greenslopes during the war. And, you know, he never wanted for anything, so he was a very secure person and his family was very good. And, you know, they were gifted some land and, a, and built a house on it a couple of kilometres from the middle of town. So I think there was a lot of security in marrying my dad and safety, perhaps, but that's not how it turned out. Like, he... Uh, Yeah, my dad drank, there's no question. At times he told me he drank a bottle of rum a night and couldn't remember years of his life and the combination of the two, you know, was pretty much violence, was just the cliche we lived at home, often in between calls of truce and times when things appeared normal but that never lasted very long. Because
0: I grew up, my parents also drank a bit and they also fought a fair bit but there was a sense that there were boundaries that mm. the argument would end, and you, we got to understand that it was the same argument playing it over and over again. It was never would never be resolved. Mm. Um, but in your case, I, I can't imagine the fear of a young child hearing that violence
1: nearby. Yeah, I, I was lucky. I still consider myself lucky that you know I, there were people around me as I got older who helped and supported me, teachers and. Uh, friends and other families nearby. I would go down to the another family down the road most weekends and they were religious people, even though I wasn't. And we'd go down to the church at the Greenslopes Hospital and I ended up becoming an altar boy down there just because I liked hanging out at the church. And I may have had the occasional drink of altar wine if I got there <laughs> early. But um, I don't think you are aware of it when you're in it. You just think that's what your life is. So I got used to running down to the phone box and hitting the right buttons to get the police there and then we'd hide around the corner until they came. I got used to the fact that you could sense the temperature changing at the dinner table as someone would say something or someone would do something you'd think, oh, my God, this is going to start doing the thing it normally does and accelerate into, you know, knives being thrown across the room or mum being pushed down the back stairs or... You know, my dad was a pretty a violent man when he drank. Uh, and my mum gave him a lot of good reasons to be angry on purpose. So I remember her serving pumpkin up on purpose one night and everybody in the house knew he hated pumpkin. And he would say, "That's we used to feed that to the pigs on the farm. How dare you serve it to me? And she would continue to serve pumpkin at different times just because she knew it would pay him back for the fact that he stayed out drinking or that he'd done something else and the look on everyone's face when you'd sit at the table and a meal would be put down and there'd be a big dollop of pumpkin on the table we was like, why would you do that? That's about that's going to start another blue. And the pumpkin would go flying across the table and out the back door and then, and then it'd be on. But that for us was normal. And it wasn't until I got to know other families and other places. I remember staying at another friend's house when I was uh, probably about 17 and they all had a Christmas dinner and there was a lot of people and there was quite a lot of drinking and we were all around and halfway through I looked around and thought, this is weird, nobody's fighting nobody's arguing, they're all laughing and having a good time. And I looked and I thought, this is bloody weird, there's something wrong with these people. Then the penny dropped. I thought, oh no, that's what families do apparently. <laughs> because in the 60s and 70s, the call to police was almost a cliche.
0: Officers would be dispatched, mm. would sort of separate the combatants and then they'd step out of it and they might mm. give the, the husband a clip over the year. Mm. But that mm. was about it. What was your experience with the way it was dealt with back then?
1: Oh, I, oh, I called with great expectations because I am still only a little bloke and these massive big coppers had come from Cooper Police Station. One I always remembered looked like the front row forward of, you know, one of the top rugby league clubs and I always wondered if it was that famous rugby league player, but he would show up and and he was just such an impressive big bloke and he'd grab my dad by the scruff of the neck and not always gave him a smack, but pretty much dealt with him pretty roughly. Got him to go somewhere else and or mum to go somewhere else. And I thought, oh, great. And then I was waiting for what happens next about how we're going to not have this happen again. And it just didn't happen. And I thought, well, that just aggravated everybody and made things worse. And, you know, police at those points didn't have the services or support or the understanding, nor did society or anyone else at that point. Well,
0: That's right, because it was sort of deemed as family business. If you were going to charge people, you
1: would probably take the breadwinner away. Mm. What would the family do? It was not a place where the law wanted to tread. No, my mum had nowhere to go either, even though she had all these relatives. And I still, I don't want to be critical of relatives or other people, but I still look back and think there were a lot of men who saw what happened, it wasn't a secret, who could have stepped in and said, stop, and could have stepped in and said, You know, we're going to help you get away from this. We're going to stop him from doing that. And because it was no one's business but their own, you know, the horrible things happened and people knew about them and they didn't do bloody anything about them. And I'm probably a bit pissed at the men I know and still know and think, well, you know, you're not a weak man. You could have stood in and gone, no, men don't do that. And I hope now that one of the things we're learning as men and to redefine masculinity that, you know, strong men can step in and stop things from happening. You know, they don't have to be violent themselves. They can step in and intervene and say something and do something and be that good bystander. Because back then it fell to the pocket-sized Corey to step up <laughs> to your father. I got a bit disappointed when I called my father out to fight on the footpath to distract him from fighting with my mother one day and said, fight me. And I was 11 and I'm still not a huge bloke. So I imagine what I was like then. And he just laughed at me, but I was ready to go on the footpath, standing there barefoot. And um, I thought, well, if you're going to fight someone, fight me. And thank goodness it didn't happen, I suppose. But Maybe that stopped him or interrupted him or maybe it was a point of reflection that he thought, well, even if this little boy wants to fight me, what am I doing fighting my anyone? Um, So how did this all play out? What happened in the end? Well, thankfully, my parents split, which, you know, was the greatest relief for both of them. You know, all that nastiness around property and other things happened. Um, you know, my father passed away and my mother never really spoke to me because I kind of looked after my father when he was ill. And when they did split, you know, she never really forgave me because she felt like I never really intervened as I should have and that I should have done something. And we had a lot of talks about that on the phone and in that final chat that we had, she said, I can never understand why you just didn't do something. And I You know, I apologised that, you know, I didn't really understand what was happening. I thought her just leaving and them getting away and her, those things were enough. But I know now that it probably wasn't. So we made peace with that. With your father, you'd seen him, this raging physical
0: force, dominating, terrifying people. Mm. And then you see him on his deathbed and you're looking after him.
1: What were your reflections about him and yourself seeing that at that moment? Well, he was a different person when he got out of the dynamic. So he went to AA, we all went to Al-Anon and the other things and he stopped drinking. You know, he went from a bloke who drank a bottle of rum a night, no worries, to and didn't remember years of his life. He said, I just don't remember those years. I would talk to him about things. He goes, I'm sorry, Matty used to call me by my middle name. He said, I'm sorry, Matty. He said, I don't even remember that. Those years, he said, they're just a blank to me. I was drinking so much. And he went from that to, you know, a bloke who... Could have a shandy and not be aggressive. He, he continued not to drink much. Um, he lived down on the water and got himself a new partner and he was a different person. How important was that redemption and change in his life for you,
0: envisioning, as you say, images of masculinity and, and, and being a man?
1: How important was that change? Yeah, you know, it wasn't until later on that he became ill that he really started to show some vulnerability, which I still think is. One of the best parts of a good man can be vulnerable, and I think knowing that he could be a different person in a different environment um, was important. And to know that you know not not all of his children were close, and my brother and sister you know bore the brunt of things. are older than me, so they probably got a much harder life than I do. I was probably the golden child, being the younger one. But I think that element of reconciliation and forgiveness between father and son and man men generally is is important. And we definitely got there. Um, I remember walking him to the toilet when he was at his worst with the cancer and he still couldn't go to the toilet. He was just impacted from all the medicine and other things. And he said, I said, I can't tell you how much this means to me. So you've had a crash course in empathy and and understanding of these issues. And how did you find your way to the police? Well, I was trying to obviously impressed my father and everyone else by joining the army and becoming an officer and that was a spectacular tragedy. So I ended up leaving the army and I slept rough for a little while and I slept at friends' houses and under friends' houses. My sister helped me out for a little while and eventually I got a little flat and was sleeping on the floor. Because you didn't want to admit to your parents that... <laughs> I was embarrassed. you failed. Yeah, I, was, I thought... What actually happened? I mean, you... Well, I, I fell in love with a girl and it was the wrong girl and I think then, even going back, I think that was me trying to find family and love and support, Um, and I threw away. I was actually pretty good at all the stuff we were doing in the Army. I was actually really good at it, and I threw it all away at the chance to be with her, and it lasted a couple of weeks. (laughs) Um, I got terribly punished in the Army for spending a lot of time with her because she was, you know, associated with some of the very senior people at Officer Cadet School, but it was a mistake only an 18-year-old in love could make. But I was so bloody embarrassed that I'd thrown away this career and I'd thrown away this opportunity that I, you know, I couldn't go home. Because your first love was 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 writing, journalism. You know, you, you were yeah, offered cadetships yeah. and, and you wrote things for the
0: Courier Mail back then. Yeah. And I wonder why didn't you pursue that? one. Was that, was that part of the family dynamic that
1: prevented that or? Yeah, you know, dad kind of mapped out a plan for me because he was an infantry soldier in his day and he said, oh, he said, if you could be a young army officer, you'd do your 20 years and then, then you know, you could go into politics here and and it appealed to me and I did enjoy the, the army up to a point. It's a bit of nonsense and stuff that didn't make sense in the army as well, but... Um, I'm grateful that I eventually did find my way to the police and that those things prepared me for it because, you know, I found a home being a a local copper. You know, I actually wasn't very good at the start. I was a bit direct and hot-headed and straightforward. But as, you know, I took my knocks and got my hits, eventually the pennies dropped differently and I had my own little personal epiphanies about, oh, if we're actually show a bit of kindness to people in this position, if we show a bit of respect, if you you have some empathy and it's genuine and you can show it to someone, it's it's life-changing and it actually is a better way of living your life and doing that job in particular because people trust you. They trust us to be in their lives in the shittiest times, yeah. in embarrassing times, and if you can show a bit of empathy and kindness there, then you can actually make things go the right direction in the right way that, that does make things better. And be an authentic human being, not just a police officer. Yeah, well, it's easy to hide behind, you know, the law says or the policy says or you know, what does your heart and your morals say? And if you start off with that, or how would you like your family to be treated? I was giving a session with the people, all the good people from Murray Watch in Brisbane, who, you know, support Indigenous vulnerable people. And uh, this morning I was with them talking about how we train police to communicate now and how it's based on the fact that you can show some empathy for people and how doing that for, particularly for vulnerable people and people in times of crisis, particularly if you're wearing a uniform, is very, very powerful. So I just wonder if those big coppers that came to our house back in that day showed a bit of empathy and said, oh, mate, I've been here five times, you know, I keep coming back to this house, what can we do? You know, know, I really feel for your situation. This is not getting any better. Who could I talk to? What could I do? And I think country police are probably a little bit better at doing that because they do have those relationships with, you know, the community. Well, that's right. Um, I guess the first issue of policy was the fact that you were too short to be a
0: policeman, (laughs) weren't you? How tall were you?
1: Yeah, well, I claim 172 uh-huh. on a good day, but the day I got measured to join the police at the end of all the testing, I was 171 and they said, oh, I'm very sorry, you know, the height limit's 172. I think it's 5'7 and a bit in the old scale, but they, um, I was quite downtrodden and quite heartbroken and I went away with my tar between my legs and one of my mates said oh you see our local doctor because he's an acupuncturist, maybe it's something he could do and he said if I got measured in the morning I'd be taller because my, your spine decompresses and you might be a centimetre taller so I didn't leave it to chance so I hung upside down on the clothesline while my mate spun me around I did all sorts of exercises, I thought tall thoughts and imagined I was bigger than I was and I, I may have had three thick pairs of socks when I went in to get measured the following, about two weeks after, and I knocked on the door, police recruiting this nice lady, said, oh, come on in, little fella. I said, well, my doctor said I might be taller in the morning because of this, you know, your spine decompresses. And she said, I'll give you another go. And they took your boots off, but not your socks. So The socks may have been thick, probably not a full centimetre, but they didn't hurt. And she said, wouldn't you know it? You're 172. And I was on my way from then. I showed up at the academy and they were marking the role and they looked around at me and they looked back again, did a double take and said, how did you get here? I said, it's too late now. It's too late now. <laughs> a fateful moment. But think oh, yeah. of this. If you
0: hadn't done that, hadn't actually laid down the back of the car on the way to the <laughs> second too, yeah. testing, as well,
1: I think it's hilarious. But you were happy to stay in uniform all these 36 years of your, of your career. Yeah, I did some investigative work when I ran the street prostitution unit in the valley. That was a couple of years, but it was really, uh, you know, hit and run, low level street prostitution and street drugs. Uh, We worked up a lot of jobs and handed them over. and, And in the crime squad, it wasn't Strictly plainclothes investigative work, mm. but we were—it was TV-style policing where we do controlled activities on street corners and with drug dealers, and then we'd work them up and hand them over to state crime ops. And we called ourselves like uh, the game fishermen that we would gladly catch big fish, but someone else could clean them and gut them, and because <laughs> we'd be want to go back out fishing again. You know, that too was impactful work. I just remember working with the street workers and the prostitutes in Fortitude Valley and having this epiphany that they were actually nice people, that they actually had lives. They actually didn't really want to be there. And when we were arresting them, it actually didn't help. So, you know, that was probably the first time I realized that arresting people hand over fist probably wasn't the solution for some of these things that are complex social and human problems. Well, that's right, because you
0: came into policing around the time Broken Windows was was Mm. in vogue, which was all about the numbers, all about arrests, all about moving people on, all about that sort of stuff. But it was so ineffective and so qualitatively
1: a failure. It was purely a quantitative exercise. You know, the criminologist that came up with that phrase is, it was always upset. I watched a lecture in Brisbane, I mean, he said, broken windows was about doing something about all the things you saw. It didn't mean you had to bloody arrest everybody. But New York applied it first and they said, no, no, it means we've got to arrest everybody for everything. You know, we're not going to leave any, pro- any small offence uncharged. Um, so he was always upset that broken windows turned into zero tolerance. Um, because that's not what it was intended to be. Um, Like, if you see things that need to be fixed, that they should be fixed, and fixing them is not the same as arresting them. It's like dealing with all those street workers. You can arrest a street worker for soliciting, and they get a $300 fine. That just means that's three disgusting things they have to do next time they're out to make up that fine, and they still got to put heroin in their arm. So when we stopped arresting them and started diverting them and started building relationships with them and started concentrating on people that were taking advantage of them or hurting them or or supplying them drugs and did, you know, small operations on those people instead of dragging poor bloody street workers into the watch house, those people actually got help and actually told us things and worked with us. It was remarkable how, how much it changed.
0: At the time I met you, you were the senior sergeant in the city office operations mm-hmm. and you are also dealing with the valley. Big homeless problem at the time and there was mm. national headlines where Queensland police were dealing with, with homeless, um, just moving them on, yeah. arresting them and so on and so forth. What was the key change
1: for you in changing that approach? Well, it was embarrassing largely because there was actually a really good relationship between police and homeless people. But when I spoke to the police themselves, all this bad press and there was a really bad video of police arresting a homeless bloke in Brisbane and they put him on the ground and it was very violent. It was the first criminal charge of a police officer ever in Queensland, preferred by a member of the public. So they were charged civilly with a criminal matter. It was embarrassing that that was what people thought about us when I actually spoke to police and they said, we actually know all the homeless people quite well. But when we have issues and when we have dramas, there's nobody here to work with us. We feel like we're by ourselves. So that was when I realised if we could get better relationships and get people to actually come out on the beat with us, not just have a nice website or a nice service that works 8 to 4 Monday to Friday, that why would we take someone to the watch house if you could actually help them? Or even better, why don't we use that leverage that police have when you're standing on the side of the road with a bloke who's committed a minor you know, street offence, instead of taking them to the watch house, you say, mate, I've got these friends here. They're from the micro projects were the ones that helped us first and the most. They could probably give you a place to stay tonight and give you a bed for a couple of days because I really don't want to take you to the watch house and that leverage helps get long-term people off the street and... I tell you what, it's much easier than taking people to the watch house where they could be unwell and it was much better for the police to think, oh, we feel supported now that people are going to come out with us and help us help this person because they knew they weren't helping them. They knew they're putting old mate in the watch house who's who's got chronic alcohol problems and layers of mental health and health problems and could very well perish in a watch house is, is not what they joined the police to do. So when they felt that they were supported by services and they could call the Street to Home team all that time we used to waste arresting and dealing with people, we could reinvest in actually doing other police work. And over that period... How many people did you find homes for oh, or assist? yeah, it'd have to be around 80 at least, together with micro-projects. Like we did a project called 50 Homes, 50 Lives, and we concentrated on the most 50 most vulnerable homeless people in Brisbane and we worked really hard together with them to do assertive outreach with them to get them housing as a priority because they're the most vulnerable people who could perish on the streets. And then the the byproduct of that was when police got to talk to homeless people a different way and got to understand their story, got to sit with them and ask different types of questions other than what have you done wrong and what offence have you committed. They used that same techniques and those same conversational skills when they did other things. So when they were talking to someone that had a minor drug charge, instead of just dropping a notice to appear on them and Sending them to court, they would ask other things. Well, what's going on for you? What's happening in your life? And they would offer help and refer for that. So, it, that little personal epiphany that people had when they dealt with a vulnerable homeless person and had a success really transformed their belief about how they could communicate and connect with people. And since then, you know, when I went into a training role, you know, I've managed to implement that as part of our training. That's how we model communication in the Queensland Police now. It's around respect and empathy and listening and building rapport and then trying to influence behaviour rather than just telling people what to do.
0: Right, because this is all really important, I guess, in a post-Rodney King, Black Lives Matter Mm. kind of era where the validity of police is critical. I never even heard that phrase before you said it, actually, <laughs> validity of police. They're just, they are the police. But yeah. there is a validity question that goes right back to Sir Robert Peel's principles where he said that the police are just the community with a uniform on. Mm-hmm. So you can't see them as something different. So this question of
1: validity was something you spent a long time on. Well, you can't you can't be an occupying force. And I saw that when I worked in the States. I did one of those church or fellowships and I went around a few places. Some places, you know, it was palpable that they were like They may as well have been Marines walking around San Francisco. You know, the community didn't want to work with them and they felt like they were there to keep people in their place in some cases. Um, I knew we couldn't get away with that here because, you know, look at what we've just been through, the pandemic, natural disasters. They're things that we need to do together as a community. If people don't like us and don't respect us and don't trust us, they're not going to work with us and help us when we're talking about domestic violence and we're talking about mental health, you know, some of the greatest challenges for police and the most increased risks we have, we can't solve that by just being a police officer that comes in and has, you know, an arrest as their only option. You know, we need to have the trust and the support of other people that work with us to try and make people safer. Country cops know that because... If they're an arsehole and they go there and they write tickets for everyone and they show no quarter, the next time they're out on the highway with a fatal or they have a land search or there's some type of disaster, they'll be standing there on their own for a long time. City police don't learn that lesson as quickly, but... You know, we're trying to embed it in the training so that you learn the habit of communicating with people in this way. And if the penny drops and you realise that that's what procedural justice is, when I listen to you, I show respect, I give you voice, I act with trustworthy motives, and I do that by communicating and and conducting myself this way all the time. If the penny drops, that's great that you understand that. If it doesn't, bad luck. That's the way we communicate we know it works. Actually, it's works so well, it de-escalates even the most volatile situations. Then that's the framework we're gonna use for the way we communicate. And my dream for that is also that, why wouldn't we teach that to young men? So why wouldn't young men, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, when they're starting to form their identity and form their masculinity, why don't we teach them how to be great communicators? because we spend a lot of time teaching them how to tackle and how to play footy and do other things um, and how to send nasty messages on Snapchat. So what if we could get young men to learn that good men can actually handle a bit of pressure and handle a bit of risk and and calm things down by conducting themselves and talking certain ways at certain times? Well, exactly when a drunk or a violent person, whoever it is, is in the
0: face of a police officer, he's a human being. Mm. He's he's mm. being abused. He's being, his mother's <laughs> being abused, all these types of things. And it's mm. very difficult. I think it's the same thing when you meet people in jail, this absence of self-soothing that you can get through a situation without reacting, without, allowing like a Will Smith moment, shall we say. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Um, That's a very good example of of no safety catch on the brain there. Give us an example of the sort of scenarios
1: you do in that that example. So much to the uh, confusion of the tactical training people, I took over the tactical training areas, the operational training stuff, and um, I asked them one simple question. I said, you tell me what's the most important skill a copper should have. And there was dead silence in the room. I said, well, you teach police all these skills. You teach how to use a pistol, taser, handcuffs, spray, batons. There's 12 use of force options on a use of force continuum. Um, what's the most important one? Someone said, oh, it's communication. I said, well, yeah. I said, how much time do you spend doing that? Because you spend 80 hours teaching someone how to shoot, 20 hours how to tase. They said, Oh, they kind of pick it up, you know, as they go through. I said, Well, not anymore. I said, We're going to teach communication as a tactical skill. And fortunately, you know, the inspector that was there before me a few years ago was one of these really influential blokes and he coined something called tactical communication. So I had a little bit of a foundation to work with. I said, But we're going to take it to the next level where we want us to do scenarios where you actually practice talking under pressure in these very critical situations. So, You know, the most common shooting scenario police can have, and it's pretty universal in Australia, is a male person in a mental health crisis with a knife, generally outside the front of their house or on the street. You know, I've done a study to confirm that's pretty much a a routine shooting situation. Um, How powerful would it be if we could control that situation and be safe enough to actually inject these really effective tactical communication skills, these influence communication skills, instead of yelling loud verbal commands over and over again, which does disappoint me that we still get stuck in that loop from time to time that you could say, mate, nobody wants to hurt you. Tell me what's going on. What's your name? What's your first name? If we could use those skills, if we're under that side of pressure, then maybe we would actually pull the trigger less and that's exactly what's happened is that we do these scenarios where police are confronted with a risk, the person has a knife, they say some things that tell you they've got mental health issues and they're having the worst day of their life and we practice them in selecting the right use of force option and certainly making some loud verbal commands but then when they don't work, instead of just repeating those commands over and over again, We tell them to circuit break it and, okay, ask a question. Use some of these techniques that police negotiators use. Mate, nobody wants to hurt you. I don't want to shoot you. Tell me what's really going on. I feel nervous when you've got that knife in your hand. Can you just put it by your side instead of drop the knife, drop the knife 50 times over and over again? Followed by gunshots, well, which, yeah. we, which we
0: have seen in numerous occasions because we have this phenomenon of deinstitutionalization mm. of people who otherwise would have been in hospitals in previous generations. Yeah. And so it okay. is falling to police
1: and the community to deal with this. So it's all new territory, isn't it? And people amplify their issues and they get worse and worse to the point where the only people that come are the police. And guess what? We bring a Glock. So it's a dangerous combination that, you know, we have some other less lethal options. But uh, people know that if I provoke a police officer enough and do certain things, there's a good chance that they'll point a gun at me. And if I continue, there's a good chance they'll shoot me. So us being aware of that and having something else to do, creating distance, creating time and space, slowing things down controlling the tone of your voice and your own reactions. and You've got to remember police are shooting themselves at the same time. Like a police officer that's got to pull their gun out, that's got to talk to someone who's who's much closer than they should be, who doesn't want to kill anybody, who doesn't want to shoot someone, is in a terrible mental state as well. But I tell you, I watch a lot of body-on video now where police you know, will present a weapon and use really, really powerful words to resolve it. So the other day I was watching one and police said, mate, I've got a wife and kid at home. Don't make me do this. And I thought, what a wonderful human way of expressing this is more than just you and a knife and me and a gun. This is two people in a potentially horrible situation. And to be able to, for police to pull that out under that pressure just shows, you know, the level of human being we've got out there doing this stuff. So I... I hold a lot of hope for the fact that if police are better communicators and and it is an empathetic form of communication and a style we teach them that that sets them up to have, you know, wiser heads on younger shoulders sooner so they don't have, you know, the experience I had growing up where I was a police officer who I was pretty direct, I was never rude, but I was more interested in making a pinch and getting a charge and getting some overtime than I was in sorting out the problem and I got rewarded for it and it took a long time for me to realise that I could continue to arrest the world, but I'd continue to have a lot of court and a lot of, complaints and a lot of drama and I could call myself a worker, but I actually wasn't making things better.
0: So you've got about five years left in the job, I think. Yeah. What will be the way you look back? What will be the
1: satisfying moments? How will you judge satisfaction in your career? I don't want to be too hard on myself, but I don't think I've got there yet. Because I think, you know, there's a culture I'd like to see emerge in the police that's different from some of the elements I see. And I worry about how the society in general affects the elements of policing. So I worry about things like this, that people see police use force and there's videos of it and it's all over the place. And then I watch the comments pop up. Yeah, buddy, that's great. You know, police should you know, put them down. It's a bit like there's a subsection in our community that are like, no, you know, those people are scum and police should use force and police should just lock them up because I know that there's a groundswell of people that understand that actually locking people up doesn't work. It certainly doesn't make people better and you were talking about going to prison and the the prison culture. Like, I don't see too many people coming out of there and, oh, I feel he's better. Now my life's transformed. I'm going to be <laughs> so much a better person. Um I just worry that that part of society that that feeds on division, that feeds on saying that they you know people are just grubs or they're just druggies or they're just this, don't realise that those people are your family potentially. It doesn't matter how rich you are or lucky or privileged you are. That you know three bad mistakes and that person who's on a corner that is addicted to drugs or is you know a victim or a perpetrator of violence is someone that you know, and all of a sudden that would be different. And if we have this closed mind that there are, you know, us and them or, you know, we should use a lot of force or a lot of authority to solve these problems all the time, I'd hate to think that that was dominant in our police culture because when we're under pressure and we have a lot of demand and, you know, we've had excessive demand the last couple of years, you know, with COVID and everything else that we've been dealing with, that it's easy to just go and arrest everyone. It's easy to just go and lock people up, but it doesn't actually work. It's
0: so dumb because 95 plus percent of people come out of jail eventually. Mm. And
1: if you've deprived them of employment opportunities, education and training and so forth, what are they going to do? Yeah, I agree. And a lot of people in jail are not crooks. They're people with mental health and drug issues and health problems that continue to make easy mistakes. They're the low-picking fruit, the low-hanging fruit, I should say. They're... You see people in jail There's more mental health and drugs and trauma and untreated psychological issues in jails than there are mastermind criminals who yeah. made a career out of being a good crook. That's right. And
0: this anger and desire for revenge on behalf of, might I say, tabloid media and a few right-wing politicians, mm. that it's all about punishing them, get them away from society. They come back. So yeah. we're dealing with that bitter harvest. Uh, so what's left for mm. you, Corey Allen?
1: I've just got a new job as the I'm leaving the training area and going to be a local inspector, which I think is one of the greatest jobs someone could have, and it's in my local area on the west of Brisbane. Um, I'm looking forward to reconnecting with community and the other stuff I was doing in the city. I've been feeling a bit disconnected with that in the training role, even though I've kept up some of the stuff I do in my own time. And you know, I have no aspirations of getting to dizzy heights because I just feel you know it's something a good local copper can do for the people around them and their community that is terribly rewarding and I feel grateful for the chance to get back into my local area and do it. I've already put the feelers out for um, what could we do in my area to trial different things and try different things, so to conduct, you know, little experiments that prove different things work.
0: It's kind of full circle for you in a way because at the start of this conversation we are talking about the fact of what a good local copper, what difference he could have or she could have made... Mm your mother and your family situation.
1: Yeah, I've I've got some little benchmarks there about, you know, what domestic violence looks like in our area and where we're getting it wrong. And we do make mistakes regularly, and the consequences are sometimes terrible. About, um, I'm really worried about uh, police being put in situations and making mistakes about the way they use force and the way they deal with conflict and how to coach people through that. And I think I'm really well prepared to start, you know, giving police some of that support that they probably haven't had time for about coaching and debriefing stuff better and understanding what we can do differently and how we can continually improve. Just And uh, oddly enough, one of the best vehicles for this is the body cameras that we use because we're recording tetrabytes of our own reality TV show on 1080 high deaf, body-worn camera. So, you know, I've got this little thing I'm working on about, you know, sitting with police every time they're involved in an incident or something that's a little bit critical and watching their own reality TV show together and having a conversation structured around, you know, what was what was the things there you'd like to do again and what would you do differently and what would we do next time and what were the good things that we should do more of? I call it the three Russians, more of, less off and piss off. You know, what should we do more of that, less of that and what should we just piss that off because we don't want to do that again? Because, you know, police are defensive. They don't like talking to each other about what they did wrong or what they could have done better. But I think if you can get to the point where you can have that conversation with a copper and I wish someone had had that conversation with me as a younger bloke. I probably would have um, found a happy medium and a happier life earlier and sooner. Well, You know, uh, guys like you tend to get promoted. I hope you don't because I think you would
0: be more useful yeah. staying in that area. Corey, thank you so much for your time today. It's been really, really interesting. And I uh, thank you for sharing these personal insights.
1: Uh, thank you. And
0: thanks for what yeah. you do, bringing these stories to life. I, I listened to it and it's really good. Thank you so much. And thank you for your service, mate. If you'd like to hear more of my work, go to Real Crime Features, Real Crime Interviews and State Crime Command Investigations. Thanks for listening. Executive producer, Grant Tothill. Mixing, editing and theme music by Matt Nikolich, Associate producer, Matt Dwyer. Research by Nolly Way Shand. Digital producer, Jack Shand. This has been a Real Crime production. Written and produced by Adam Shand. Listener.